When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're looking at Psalm 109, a psalm with lots of cursing in it. How do we understand that? How do we read it? And uh, beware if you skip ahead to 110 and 111, it gets even worse. Um, But how do we understand these kinds of psalms? And also, number 16, another rebellion against Moses and some really quick footwork with the incense that saves the day. Um, All this coming up. Both of these uh, readings today, the psalm that Melanie sang, psalms that Melanie sang, and the lesson that Scott read from number 16, Psalm 109 and number 16, um, both have some really difficult concepts in them that we as modern people um, might not say things this way today in a church service. Um, The psalm is about being falsely accused. Um, And we have to read it through those, that lens. In fact, it's probably better to read it through a lens of someone without any power, um, without any wealth, without any prestige, without any fame, being falsely accused of something in a court of law. And we know from many modern examples that people without a lot of resources, when they're accused of something, or even worse, falsely accused of something, um, there's very little they can do um, in most situations when they're falsely accused. Um, Any kind of defense seems like an excuse. and a cop-out, and all. we have a lot of words for what it means when someone makes excuses for themselves, even in a false accusation. And so the anger and rage of the falsely accused is probably um, about as angry as humans can get. Um, We get angry at a lot of things as human beings, and that's sort of normal, and that's always been the case. But um, when you've been falsely accused of something makes people really, really angry. I'm putting it mildly there because um, there is a, a, a sudden disconnect between reality, almost a disassociative state that you enter as a falsely accused person. When you realize that no matter what you say and how, no matter how you say it or no matter anything, any denial is actually seen as being completely opposite of what you're trying to say. The more you protest, the more guilty you are. And the psalmist is raging about this, um, that the false accusers are the real evil people in this situation, and they're getting off free and easy. Um, Can God handle our emotions is a big question. I've had, um, I've probably shared this before, but when I was a hospital chaplain, um, here in Austin, actually, this happened. Uh, there was a person brought into the ICU emer- uh, emergency room, then the ICU to be stabilized, and that person died. And it was a parent, and one of uh, her children was in the hallway screaming, God hates us, God hates us, God hates us, God hates us. Um, 
and they got me, the chaplain, to come over and talk to her um, because she was just so upset, so visibly upset, so um, so demonstratively irrit- irritated and upset and angry in the hallway, and it was causing a big scene. There was a lot of noise, so they tried to get me to stop her. And I remember a nurse reaching out their hand to, like, stop this woman from screaming this because I guess it was blasphemous or something. And, and I remember like sort of grabbing the nurse's hand and being like, okay, don't put your hand on her just yet. Like give her a little space. Like she obviously is saying this for a reason and people are, have grief when people die. That's like a normal thing. Let's not, um, stifle someone's grief. Um, and then I talked to her and you know, she told me why she said God hates us, that she was uh, her mother's caregiver um, for the last number of years and didn't think she would die, um, didn't think that, that would happen, that if she cared for her good enough and did a good enough job, that her mother wouldn't die. And her mother did die. And she was angry at God and, and upset at God. And a very normal response, I think, um, when you've read enough of the Bible and you've read enough of the Psalms, you know that God can handle people's raw emotions. And in Psalm 109, we have that raw emotions, anger, rage, um, that white hot burning phosphorus rage that only comes in a false accusation. And the psalmist is feeling that. So God can handle our feelings, especially when it comes to situations where we have no power and no way to get out of them. Um, God can handle our feelings, and we ought to be able to handle each other's feelings. We rush in to solve other people's feelings so often when really our first task is listening. And I'm as, I've done that as many times as anybody else. I've tried to save people by giving them a little explanation, when in fact, sometimes all we can do is weep. All we can do is wail. All we can do is feel what we're actually feeling. This morning in my running group, uh, we were running on the track and one of the guys slipped on the edge of the track where there's a little lip and he stumbled a little bit and the whole little group of us, little pack of about seven who were running in a cluster at the same speed to try to keep our speed for the the workout, um, gasped audibly when he when he slipped and he didn't fall he just like tripped a little bit and recovered and we all like gasped and it was audible and we all like said are you okay or a couple people said are you okay and he was okay obviously he was still running but it it sent such a visceral shock wave through our little community there and that is what happens when someone experiences a loss a grief and you're emotionally connected to them there's a ripple a shock wave that goes through the whole group kind of like um, cows in a field that when one of them touches an electric fence, they all shudder. Um, This is what happens in grief. And it would have been easy perhaps for him, the runner who tripped, to see our gasping and our sort of, are you okay, um, as a maybe act of control or our needing him to be okay or maybe even judging him a little bit for tripping. Um, in his maybe more sensitive state of vulnerable state of, of tripping and falling. And I'm stretching this example maybe a little too much, 
But I think we do that in, when other people are grieving sometimes. Our need to, to sort of help them and solve or do what we can for them um, sometimes is seen as a hostile act or as a judgmental act. Um, so again, we always remind each other um, that we really can't solve anyone's problem. Only God can and only they can. And we can be there with them and walk with them and listen and feel with them and experience those feelings and reassure, but not go into that solving mode, which is so easy to do um, for humans. The psalmist doesn't need his problems solved as much as the psalmist needs someone to listen. And that someone is God. Um, And then we get to number 16. We have this ongoing raw scene Moses is standing up to a rebellion. Korah and his followers have been swallowed by the earth. God has made God's ruling in this case. And yet there are still hundreds of people who want to get rid of Moses. Um, The 250 men who have offered incense before the altar, who have violated the prohibition that that non-Levites can serve at the altar, Um, They have been judged by God as saying, nope, uh, the altar of sacrifice that is set up in the tabernacle is to be run by the the family of Levi, of Moses and Aaron's descendants. Um, And this ruling by God is now being uh, challenged again. Um, Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to take he told, tells Eleazar, son of Aaron, Aaron's son, Eleazar, to bring all those bronze uh, incense censers or thurables um, and scatter the fire far and wide to take them out of the blaze and then to hammer them down in their molten state into a covering for the altar. This becomes the bronze altar that exists all the way through the, till the destruction of the temple under Nebuchadnezzar, this this bronze altar. The bronze altar is like a barbecue grill. Um, Whole animals, oxen, sheep, other animals are placed on the altar. Sometimes they're butchered. Sometimes they're burned completely up. Sometimes their animals are butchered and, and the cuts of meat are laid on the altar in a certain way, like you would on a grill. But there's coals underneath that are roasting. So you can imagine sort of the wonderful aroma that comes out of the temple every day and as hundreds or tabernacles, hundreds and sometimes thousands of, of uh, oxen and other animals are barbecued, grilled right there in the temple. But this is the work of the tribe of Levi. God has created a priestly uh, family of Levi that is to do this work. And this challenge of these other non-Levites to this work is answered by God. Um, and this, this um, hammering of the, in, the bronze incense censers um, covers the altar to remind anybody who sees it that only the tribe of Levi can admit. It's reminding them of the trauma of the judgment of God against these 250 men. Um, we see this often throughout Old Testament history that stones are set up, markers are set up, monuments are set up, not only to blessing, 
Um, when they cross the Jordan River, the monument is set up in the middle of the river. Um, that's a, a moment of great victory and joy. But other monuments are set up occasionally to um, remind people of judgment, uh, remind them of, of what happened when this happened before. Um, those are also markers of our lives. When we look back at our lives and we think of um, times of judgment, and judgment, again, by God, is often just letting us do uh, what we want to do, letting things run their course. In the story of the prodigal son, the judgment of God is to give the prodigal son his money and let him go off into a far country uh, to waste his money um, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll and let it happen. That's the judgment of God, which ultimately the kindness of God is what leads that young man back. But the judgment of God is often just, you know, people, things running their course. Um, and so in this case, there's a reminder. And if we look back at our lives and say, have I ever set up a, a monument to my judgments? Um, and we can do this in a good way, not to bring shame upon us or not to, um, so we feel bad about our actions or what we did or didn't do, but to say, like, I'm different now. That's not me anymore. Um, that did happen. I did that. But, like, I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm going to remind myself, if I ever get close to it, that I'm not going to do that ever again. Um, we do this in a lot of ways in modern culture, and, and I think it's a good thing to do, to remind ourselves um, of the judgment that we've experienced. And so this bronze altar becomes more than just a holy barbecue. It becomes a visible symbol of what God has asked the tribe of Levi to do. Um, then there's this beautiful scene. It's really kind of strange. Um, there's another rebellion that happens. They rebel on the next day. The whole congregation of the Israelites rebel against Moses and Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. Um, and they all assemble to come and get rid of Aaron and Moses. And what they do is Aaron and Moses turn to the tent of meeting. This must have been a scary moment for them. Like, maybe this is the end. Maybe this is it. Um, they turn to the tent of the cloud of meeting, or they turn to the tent of meeting, and there's a cloud covering it. And the glory the Shekinah of the Lord appears there. Um, this was a different thing than the cloud. It's a light, similar to the light that illumined Moses' face after he met with God. This light appears. And Moses and Aaron come to the front of the tent of the meeting. They stand before God. And God speaks to them, not just in a private way, but it seems like maybe in a more public way. Get away from this congregation that I may consume them. And if there was ever a moment where Moses and Aaron were like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> let's step away and the earth will swallow them or a fire will come down and burn all of these guys up because they are out for blood. They want to get rid of me and Aaron and now be a really good time, God, for the for the art, holy artillery to fall on all these people. Instead of doing that, they did it for Korah and the 250. Um, they did it for them. But this time, Moses and Aaron don't step aside. They don't 
move away from the congregation. In fact, they anchor themselves to the ground. They fall on their faces. They grab a hold of the earth and say, God, we're not moving. We are not separating ourselves from this people so you can judge them. We're going to stay here so that you don't judge them, so that you don't kill them. Um, They call the Lord's bluff here. Moses has done this before. He has said, um, I'd rather have you kill me than kill all these people. Um, And he does it right here with Aaron in front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord says it again. Um, But so Moses says to Aaron, take your censer. He still has his incense thurible. Take your censer, put it, put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. To sense them with the incense is a way of announcing their forgiveness. The way of saying um, what they are guilty of, they are no longer guilty of. The word atonement is the word for mercy seat in Hebrew and Greek. It is a word that is often translated propitiation in some older versions of the Bible. In more modern versions, translated expiation, sort of a taking away of a consequence, or um, atonement, to make one, to make two things that are separated to make them one. That is what is happening here. Um, When we sense the congregation on Sundays, um, we are announcing the atonement of God, that the whatever has happened in the Holy of Holies with the incense cloud that God dwells in, um, that incense is now being given to you as people. It is being placed upon you. It is announcing that the air is clearing. We even use that in English, to clear the air when two people reconcile after a grievance. We are clearing the air in this way. And so... um, Aaron does this, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, and then this plague begins. And I don't really know what kind of plague it was, but it's killing people really fast. People are dying, or maybe they're just falling over, collapsing. And Moses Moses goes and runs, um, Aaron goes and runs into the middle of the whole assembly, into the middle of the camp. This is a camp of at least 600,000 people. So how do you, it's a long run to go into the middle of an encampment of 600,000 people. He runs into the middle of it with this incense burning. Um, and he puts, there he puts the incense there and makes atonement for them. Aaron stands between the dead and the living and the plague is stopped. 14,000 pe- people, 700 people die. 14,700 people died in this plague. But what Aaron does is he stands between the dead and the living. And this is the priestly ministry that God has called all Christians to, to stand between the dead and the living. That we as Christians are meant to be priests in this world, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. We stand between the people and God. We stand there and say, there is reconciliation There is forgiveness. There is new life. There are second chances. There are new opportunities that whatever you've done or left undone has been taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
that he has washed away your sins and you are a new person and you can live into that reality every single day of your life. You don't need to be burdened by that anymore. And we as God's priests stand in between the dead and the living. And we announce that forgiveness in God, just as as Moses and Aaron did. So whenever you're with someone who's having a Psalm 109 moment, someone who feels like they're dying, who feels like they're misunderstood, that no one loves them, that their life is over, we have that opportunity to be to stand between the dead and the living. And we don't always have to use a lot of words. We don't always have to preach a sermon. We just have to be there, to stand there, um, to, to let the incense of our lives be there between them, the dead and the living, just like Moses and Aaron did these many years ago. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Church remembers Alban, the first martyr of Great Britain. Alban's name means white, um, maybe from the garment he wore, hard to know. Um, But he's the earliest Christian in Britain who we know by name and according to tradition to be the first British martyr. Um, We know a little bit about his life, that he was a Roman soldier um, in the Roman army. Rome conquered Britain um, right before it conquered Palestine. about 60 years before Jesus was born. And um, the Roman occupation of Britain lasted a really, really long time and, um, and could be argued still is there today. But he was a Roman soldier stationed there at Ver- Verulanium, a city about 20 miles northeast of London, which is now called St. Albans, named after him. Um, while he was there, Uh, We don't know much about his life, except that he was a soldier. Um, A priest, a Christian priest, was fleeing Roman persecution, and he gave him shelter. He said, stay in my little hut, and I'll protect you. Um, And while he was talking to this priest, he he heard the story about Jesus and became a Christian. Um, Suddenly, the Roman soldiers chasing uh, this priest 
burst through the door. And um, by the time they got to his house, Alban had switched clothes with the priest. He dressed himself in the garments of the priest and said, I'm the priest. And so they arrested Alban instead of the Christian priest. Alban was tortured and martyred in the place of the priest on the hilltop where the cathedral of St. Alban's now stands. The traditional date of his martyrdom is 303 or 304. Um, recent studies suggest it might be the year 209, 100 years before, um, during the reign of the Emperor Septimus Severus. Um, the site of Alban's martyrdom became a shrine. King Offa of Mercia established a monastery there in 793, and this became the premier abbey of monks in England during the High Middle Ages. Um, They built a giant cathedral there in 1077, right after the Norman Conquest, and this cathedral still stands um, there in the Diocese of St. Albans. It's the second longest church in England. Winchester is the longest by six feet, and it's built on higher ground than any other English cathedral. Um, The remains of Alban the Martyr are still there in a chapel um, there on the side of the, where the choir sings. The Venerable Bede, who is the source of most of our information about this time, gives an account of Alban's trial. He says, when Alban was brought in, the judge happened to be standing before an altar, offering sacrifices to the pagan Roman gods. What is your family and race? demanded the judge. Alban answered, How does my family concern you? If you wish to know the truth about my religion, know that I am a Christian and am ready to do a Christian's duty. The judge said, I demand to know your name. Tell me at once. Alban said, My parents named me Alban, and I worship and adore the living and true God who created all things. And upon that answer, he was executed by the Roman government. So today we thank God for Alban, who not only bore the witness to Christ, to his death, but also saved a life in his death. Almighty God, by whose grace and power your holy martyr Alban triumphed over suffering and was faithful even to death, grant us who now remember him in thanksgiving to be so faithful in our witness to you in this world that we may receive with him the crown of life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.